welcome to our service today from Stornoway. I trust that you've all been well and that you've known the Lord's blessing over the past week. And I trust we'll know the Lord's blessing today as we come together in this way to worship him. I have one intimation to read out first of all. This is on behalf of the Presbytery and it's as follows. The induction of Reverend Ian Thompson to the pastoral charge of Garibost Free Church of Scotland will be held this coming Friday, 22nd January at 7.30pm at the School Road Church in Babel. Reverend David MacLeod, moderator of Presbytery, will preach and preside. And due to the current COVID-related restrictions, the number able to attend in person is restricted to 50, and the rest will join the service by Zoom video conferencing facilities. Western Isles Presbytery will meet via Zoom at 7pm. Uh, five members of the Presbytery will be in attendance at the School Road Church and will join the meeting from there. The service will be recorded and it should be available for viewing on YouTube uh, via the Garabust Free Church website shortly afterwards. Uh, do please remember Mr. Thompson and his family in your prayers and the congregation as they settle into the congregation and that his ministry in Garabust will be a, an abundantly fruitful one under the blessing of God. We're going to begin our worship now and singing first of all in Psalm 34. Psalm number 34 in the Sing Psalms, page 40 of the Psalm books. At all times I will bless the Lord, I'll praise him with my voice. Because I glory in the Lord, let troubled souls rejoice. Together let us praise the Lord, I exalt his name with me. I sought the Lord, his answer came, from fears he set me free. Psalm 34, we're singing verses uh, 1 to 8. Or to nine it is. At all times I will bless the Lord. At all times I will bless the Lord. I'll praise him with my voice. Because I glory in the Lord. Let souls rejoice. Together let us praise the Lord, exalt his name with me. I sought the Lord, his answer came from fears he set me Come taste and see the Lord. 
Read from God's Word. Uh, our reading today is in the book of Psalms, uh, Psalm 119, and we're reading uh, the section beginning at verse 57. Sing it, uh, we'll read on to the verse marked 80. So, Psalm 119, and at verse 57. The Lord is my portion, I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favour with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me, according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. And we pray once again that God will follow with his blessing our reading of his word. Let's join together now and call upon the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our gracious and merciful God, as we come together today in this way to worship you, we pray that the fear of God may truly rule in our hearts. We have been reading in your word the words of the psalmist of long ago, and we know that much of what he says is still relevant to us today, and especially in terms of our relationship with God. We thank you today, Lord, that we have this great privilege of coming into your presence of coming by way of the access we have through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray today, Lord, that we will meet with you in that access, 
Oh, your promise is that if we come and turn to the Lord, the Lord will turn to us. And if we seek you with all our heart, we shall be found. We shall find you. We bless you today, O Lord, uh, that you have dealt with us so mercifully and graciously all the way through our lives. You have never given us what we deserve in terms of what our sin deserves. You have dealt with us, Lord, in your forbearance and long-suffering and patience and mercy. We thank you today for your forgiveness, the forgiveness which in your word we read of so frequently, which you commend to us through the gospel. We bless you, Lord, that that forgiveness is complete, that it is a forgiveness in which our sins are put out of your sight, covered over and buried in your own tender love. We bless you, gracious one, that in that way we are among those who will never be condemned. We thank you that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Help us, Lord, we pray, to prize these great truths and every other aspect of truth that we find in your word as we come through the various changes, difficulties and trials and challenges of life. The psalmist, as we read, spoke of his own circumstances, of the way that he was reviled or ridiculed by others, the way that your providence caused him much pain and suffering and affliction. And yet you taught him, O Lord, that all of this was uh, in your own best intention and goodness for him. And we thank you, Lord, that we today can come and hold on to that great principle that the Lord is good and does good. And we pray today that that goodness will be experienced by us, not only in our time of worship here, uh, but in every other aspect of our life and through all our days. We give thanks, Lord, today we belong to your church in the world, that we belong to those believing people. And uh, the psalmist himself reminded us, Lord, of how he was a companion to those who fear you. And we bless you for that companionship. We thank you for the way in which we have support and help and fellowship and everything else that we come to think of in terms of our believing human relationships in the way in which we find ourselves in your church in this world. We thank you especially, Lord, for the way that you make us members of Christ, the way that you unite us to him as we come to know that faith that your spirit creates within us and by which we are united to you. We thank you today, Lord, that you have promised that if we come uh, and confess our sin, that you will be faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Bless us, we pray, against all the wiles of the devil. Your word so frequently brings before us his attempts through various agents as well as at times openly in our temptations to draw us away from you, to set our heart on things of this world, of life beneath the sun. Help us, we pray, to resist the thought that life is better without God. Grant that we may, Lord, at all times find that our delight is in yourself, that you are the delight of our hearts, that you are the foundation of our hopes, that you are the one we expect to meet with when this world is done. We give thanks, O Lord, that your word prepares us for such, such an eventuality, 
and that your word sets out before us all the things that are contradictory in sinful human thinking. We bless you that in your grace and through the power of your spirit, all that we have broken ourselves through our sinfulness uh, is, uh, O oh Lord, overcome. And you come to mend our lives and put together that which sin has broken. Bless today, we pray, all who hear the gospel. We ask that your blessing will be with us here in this service of worship. We pray that you would be with all who gather together in whatever way today throughout the world in the worship of your great name. We pray that your kingdom will advance, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray today, especially, Lord, for those who are afflicted. We pray for those that we know ourselves, especially in our congregation and community, who today are afflicted through the passing of loved ones whose hearts are heavy, who mourn and who grieve over their passing. And we ask, O oh Lord, especially that you would draw near to them. And uh, we think especially of Jessie MacLeod uh, with the death of her brother and with other aspects of your providence also such a challenge to her. We pray too for Peggy Mackenzie uh, on the sudden death of her husband, Ronnie. We ask that you would be with her and with the family, with all of those loved ones today, Lord, who miss loved ones who are gone now from the scene of time. Be pleased, we pray, to draw near to them, to comfort them and to assure them of your presence for all who come to trust in you. I remember throughout the world, O Lord, those whose cry ascends today uh, from mourning and sorrow and tragedy. We pray that you would grant blessing, Lord, throughout this world. When we know of this pandemic still so rampant amongst us, be pleased, we pray, to come with your power, be pleased to come with your own help to us and help us as we call out to you, O Lord, uh, that we may know your providence as the psalmist did and be able to say with him, it was good for me that I was afflicted. And when you come to afflict us in your providence, Lord, we know that you have a purpose. And even if we cannot, Lord, see every aspect of that purpose, yet we know that uh, it is in principle the same as it was for Israel long ago, uh, for whom 40 years in the desert was a time of testing, as you reminded them through your seven Moses when that journey had come to its end, that the Lord led them through these years to test them to see what was in their heart, whether they would be obedient to the Lord or not. And Lord, we give thanks today that your word reveals such principles to us. We pray that your blessing too will be with those who have happy news in their lives. We give thanks for new life having entered into the world. And we thank you, Lord, for the safe arrival of, uh, of uh, Finley and Ruth's child, uh, Finley Eric. We give thanks that you delivered him safely, that you kept Ruth in her journeys uh, to hospital in, on the mainland and back. We pray that you bless them as a family and help them rightly to celebrate, O oh Lord, this happy event. And we pray that you bless parents and grandparents alike. Bless all others, we pray, who uh, have such happy occasions today to celebrate. We ask that you would be with them and help us, as Ecclesiastes has taught us, truly, Lord, help us uh, to celebrate when it's right to do so and to enjoy the good things of life. We ask that you would bless today the congregation at Garabost. We think of them, O Lord, as they anticipate a new ministry. We pray for Mr. Thompson. For his family, we pray for him as he enters into 
this new phase of ministry and for the congregation as they begin this new chapter in their lives. Bless them abundantly, we pray. Let your spirit, we pray, work amongst them in days to come and add to your people there and to your professing church. And we ask, Lord, for that community uh, that that ministry will, will indeed have uh, much effect positively through the gospel. And so, Lord, we ask that you would bless us now and continue with us. Hear us in this our prayer and cleanse us from all our sin. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Our children, today we're looking at this question. Uh, last week we asked the question, uh, what is it that makes a person beautiful? Today we're asking a question, uh, in the Bible, what kind of person is a fool? What kind of person is a fool according to the Bible? Well, there are two ways we can answer that. First of all, Psalm 53 verse 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And secondly, in Luke chapter 12 and verse 20, we find uh, God saying to somebody who didn't think about the future uh, of eternity, of death and of meeting with God, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. So what does the Bible mean by saying people are fools? A fool is, first of all, somebody like Psalm 53 who claims that God does not exist, who denies the existence of God and therefore who tries to live life without God at all in their lives. There are many people like that in the world. There always have been. And the psalmist was just expressing how he was aware of people like that in the world and he wanted himself uh, to be a contrast to that, not only believing in God, but believing what God actually said to him through his word. And so that's uh, how the Bible itself speaks about a fool, a person who lives in denial of God. Now, how do we know God's existence? Well, the Bible again tells us we know his existence actually from the creation. If you put uh, your finger into some plasticine or something like that, that will leave the impression of your finger in it, it'll leave the mark of your finger in that. And we can say that in the creation, in the universe, in the world around us, uh, as well as the larger uh, creation, planets and so on, well, the Bible tells us that actually the fingerprints of God are in that. The worlds were created by the word of God. That's how Genesis begins. That's how the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And they have certain characteristics that tell us that they were created by God. For example, the placement of the earth in our solar system. It's just exactly the right distance from the sun. It, uh, is, it moves around the sun so that you have the four seasons of the year. And that itself tells you there's some special mind behind such an arrangement. The, the creation tells us that God exists. But secondly, um, in, in Luke chapter 12, we find somebody there who just lived for this world. He was somebody who was very prosperous, who was a, a, a farmer. He had uh, lots of uh, crops and uh, he had a good return on his harvest. And so he said, I'm going to just lay back and relax a wee bit. I'm going to build bigger barns so that I can have more of this in the future. And I'll just say to my soul, soul, just, just relax. You're doing well. And the, future's approved, the future is 
sure for you. And God said to him, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. Then whose shall those things be for which you have worked? You see, God was saying to him, you haven't thought about death. You haven't thought about meeting me. You haven't thought about living for me and with me in your life. And that's one of the things we've been looking at in Ecclesiastes. And we'll finish, God willing, that study this morning. But Ecclesiastes was telling us we cannot live life as if God did not exist. Because if we do, there'll be lots of problems. We'll have lots of problems as Christians as well. But at least we know that God is in charge of our lives. And here is something for you children always to remember as well. It's not just that uh, God exists, but he exists in the way that he tells us about himself in his word. So Hebrews uh, chapter 11 and verse 6 says that uh, uh, whoever believes in God, whoever comes to God, must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In other words, it's not just believing that God exists, that there is a being such as God. What the Bible is telling us is we have to believe what God says about himself. And what he says about himself is especially precious when you think about Jesus, the Son of God, that he came into the world, that he came to die on the cross so that we might be saved from our sins. That is God actually showing himself to be God and showing himself, telling us what he's like, that he's a God who will have us to be saved, not to be lost. And then we live not for the present life, like the person in Luke chapter 12, because the chapter goes on. If you read it later on, you can see that um, it went on to speak about being prepared for the coming of Jesus, because Jesus is coming back on the last day, the day of judgment, whenever that will be, we don't know. But the chapter went on to say, not only must we believe that God exists and live for God, but be prepared always, thinking about and preparing to meet with Jesus when he comes. And that means having Jesus himself as our saviour, as the one in whom we are safe when God comes in his judgment. So let's say the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray it together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We're going to turn now to the book of Ecclesiastes, and chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and reading the last two verses there, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so we're coming to, as it happens for the moment at least, to be the final uh, study in our uh, travelling through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been following Ecclesiastes, the writer of Ecclesiastes, 
in what we see as a search for the meaning of life, the purpose for human life, and that route that we've been led on by Ecclesiastes has actually taken us past many sites, if we can put it that way, different ways in which he speaks about uh, life as we know it under the sun, life in this world, the various events and experiences of human life. And we've gone past these sites, these scenes, if you like, in the journey. And now it's come to the end of the journey. He's come to the terminus. The train has reached its final destination. And this is the conclusion. This is what he has concluded from his search. This is the end of the matter. This is what it's all been leading to. What is it? It says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. In other words, he's come to the end of the search and we've come to that end of the journey with him. And he's arrived at one important conclusion. And the one conclusion he's arrived at, the sum of it all, the end result of it all is this, fear God and keep his commandments. It's a twofold conclusion. It involves the fear of God and keeping his commandments. And as we'll see, these two are very closely and separably indeed joined together. So that's the first thing. But secondly, there are two supporting considerations to that one conclusion. And the two considerations are for this is the whole duty of man, first of all, and then secondly, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. These are the two supporting considerations that he's providing for this one conclusion that he's arrived at. So let's look at the conclusion first of all, and then we'll come to look at these two supporting considerations. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now when you think about this phrase, the fear of God, we've seen it already appearing in Ecclesiastes occasionally, although he hasn't gone into it in any great detail. Uh, fear of God as it's used in the Bible, uh, the phrase is used in two ways. Sometimes it has to do with the idea of really being afraid, sometimes even terror. As you think about God and his judgment of sin, the way he rightly needs and does judge sin, that he is the judge of sin, therefore he's the judge of ourselves as sinners. And often the Bible brings out a sense of being afraid of that, having a, a terror of that, indeed thinking about who God is and what the judgment of God is about. And secondly, the second way in which it's used, indeed we'll see the main way today, is the idea of reverence for God, awe at the majesty and the presence and the love of God, and indeed every aspect of what God has revealed of himself, to live in the fear of God is to live in respect and honour and awe and love for this God. That's the second way in which the fear of God, the phrase is used in the Bible. And the first sense of it, being afraid of God and his judgment of sin, well, it's something that we have every right to be afraid of God um, when that is actually uh, fitting and right, when there's reason to be afraid. 
And today, if we actually don't have our sins forgiven, if we've not come come to, to God with them, if we haven't placed our trust, our confidence uh, in Jesus, then that's uh, giving us reasons to be afraid because we have to face the judgment of God. And the judgment of God is already upon us and upon our sin. And so we need, of course, to come to Jesus so that that and judgment is dealt with in him, as we'll see in a moment. So there's that emphasis on being afraid of God. And it's wrong to say that that has absolutely no role whatever in a Christian mind, in the thinking of a Christian. Yes, we know that we're not going to be condemned as Christians, as saved people, with those who will be condemned. But that doesn't mean that the idea of the fear of God or every semblance of being afraid of God is utterly removed from our mind. Because when you think today of what it is for God to judge sin, there's something in your mind, even as a believer, that cringes at the prospect of that. Even if you know it's not something that's going to be applied to yourself. And that's obvious from the Bible, for example, in Psalm 119. Remember, this is a believer. This is a man of God. This is somebody who, who fears God in the proper sense as well of loving God and having respect for God. But he is actually saying here in verse 120, my flesh trembles for fear of you and I am afraid of your judgments. There's a man of God, there's a believer, there's somebody who knows God as a saving God. And yet he's saying this. There's an element in which he thinks about God's judgment of sin and he begins to tremble at the prospect of that, even though he knows that he himself is in a right relationship with God. And if you think, well, that's okay for the Old Testament, but surely that's gone with the coming of Christ and with us coming to know the Spirit of God living within us as Christians. Surely that Old Testament way of thinking about God is gone. Well, is it? Well, it's not. Because when you come to the New Testament, you find Paul saying something similar. When he says in Philippians in chapter 2, uh, you find this in verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, God is working within you. That enables you to work out your salvation, but he says it's with fear and trembling. You have something similar in First Peter, where Peter is saying, uh, again, to believers, he's actually saying in uh, chapter 1 and verse 17, um, he's been speaking about the holiness of God and God calling his people to himself. And he says, if you call on him as father, see, he's saying, you're calling on him as father. You know him as a loving father. You're calling on him as a father. If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your sojourn or your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, you've been ransomed, you've been saved, but fear has not gone out the window in this sense of being afraid as you think of God's judgment of sin. It's not going to apply to you personally, saying to them. Nevertheless, when you think about sin and when you think of what sin deserves, when you think of God's judgment of sin, there's that element of fear still attached to that. That's one 
way of looking at the fear of God, but that's not the predominant way in which the dominant way in which we think of the fear of God as it's expressed in the Bible, because it's the second meaning of it that really especially fills it out and dominates the Christian's thinking, the believer's life. The dominant element in the fear of God is living in awe of God and respect of God, in a loving uh, reverence for God, in a loving honouring of God for all that he is, for all that he has revealed himself to be, for the majesty, for the grandeur, for the immensity of his being, for his salvation, for his works, for everything that you, you know of God from Scripture, you live in awe, you live in respect, you live in reverence, you live in love for that God. That is the fear of God. That is predominantly the controlling sense of the fear of God as you find it in a Christian's heart. It's that sense of God's presence, of his majesty, of his love, but it's a controlling feature. It brings you to live, or is the basis of living for God and living to depend upon God. You see, the fear of God, this, uh, this, this uh, positive controlling sense of his presence and his majesty and his love, this respect for him, this awe for him, that's really the basis of your dependence upon him. You wouldn't come to depend upon God simply for being afraid of him in his punishment of sin, in his judgment of sin. That never of itself brings you to actually respect God, to live for God. Judgment of itself does not create obedience, does not create dependence upon God, does not create a desire to please him. It doesn't create this sense of being obligated to him to serve him lovingly. But the fear of God and awe and reverence and, and respect, that certainly underlies your dependence, your desire to please him and your desire to serve him. So the fear of God is predominantly that. And this is what he's saying, this is the end of the matter. Fear God, respect God, live in awe of him live in obedience to him because that's the next thing keep his commandments and that's not just added as a kind of secondary thing it's actually inseparable from the fear of god because obedience to god which of course means uh, keeping his commandments giving respect to his commandments well that itself is rooted in the fear of god the fear that respects God, that wants to honour God, that lives in reverence to God, that's uh, the ground, that's uh, the foundation, if you like, for obedience, for our obedience to God. We, we respect him and therefore our response to, that, to God and respect is that we live in obedience to him. One of the great examples of, the, of living in the fear of God in the Bible is the person of Abraham. When you go back to Genesis and you read about the life of Abraham, all the way through Abraham's life, you can see the fear of God in action in his life, awe and respect and love for God. Think of, for example, when he was uh, on Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, um, where he was re required by God, commanded by God to give Isaac up as a sacrifice to God. And he went through with that until the moment when he was just about to put his son to death. The angel of the Lord appeared and God spoke to him through the angel, Abraham, Abraham. 
He stopped him at that moment. And he said, now I know that you fear God, seeing you are not, uh, seeing you were prepared to give up your son, your only son. That's how he put it. God said to him, now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you have respect for me. Now I can see that your claim to be a believer has actually been proved by your obedience to my command to sacrifice your son. Now I know that you fear God. You see, this is the way it was. Abraham obeyed God because he feared God, because of the reverence and the awe that he had for God as his God. It wasn't the other way about. He didn't fear God because he had obeyed him. He obeyed him because he feared him, because he respected him. And you'll find the same indeed in the practicalities of Abraham's life. In Genesis 13, you find uh, an account there of how he uh, and his nephew Lot, as they were traveling, came to a certain place. And it was the Valley of the Jordan, beautifully watered, nice lush ground, uh, good for the for the, uh, the, the the animals they had with them. And Abraham said to Lot, you choose. You choose where you want to settle. Take your people, take your your goods, take your cattle, you choose. And of course, Abraham chose, uh, uh, Lot chose the best looking place. It didn't actually happen to be the best at the end of it all because uh, he was living in the vicinity of Sodom. But this is what Abraham actually said to him. Abraham, in his generosity, said to him, you choose. I'll leave it to you. You take whatever you want and I'll just have uh, something else then. Why did Abraham do that? How could Abram be so unselfish, so unconcerned for himself? Because he feared God. And people who fear God have no need to be mean or stingy in the way they treat others. Abram's thinking was, well, I fear God. I know who God is. I value him as God. I respect him as God. I live in obedience to him as God. If Lot takes the best of the land, so what? God is still going to look after me. See, that was his thinking. That's the thinking of someone who lives in the fear of God. That's why he was unselfish. That's why he was obedient to God. That's why he lived in the fear of God. That's why, that's why because he lived in the fear of God. So there is the conclusion. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. In other words, here's Ecclesiastes saying, we've come on this journey and this is the antidote, this is the alternative God is giving us to vanity of vanities. That's where the journey began. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity under the sun. You cannot, in other words, find a purpose for human life under the sun. The fear of God, it's been mentioned before, chapter 3, verse 14, chapter 5, verse 7, chapter 8, verse 12, and now chapter 12, verse 13. The writer has known this all along. He's not just suddenly discovered this as he's come to this part, part of, of the book. He's known this all along, but he's been taking us on this journey so that we can be convinced as he is convinced that the purpose for human life cannot be found without God. And leaving God out of the picture simply will not do. Human life under the sun. It's pretty much meaningless, he's saying. 
But when you bring God into the picture, then it begins to make sense. And even if we can't understand it all, at least we can understand this. That the best way, as we'll see now, of being human is to live in the fear of God. There's his one single conclusion. This is where the journey has come to an end. This is what he's now bringing out as we followed him on this journey. And he's coming now to show us this so that we will be convinced about this. He's mentioned it, as we said earlier. We've seen, if you like, as the train has gone through all these stations. Sometimes you've just seen a glimpse of the fear of God in these verses I've mentioned throughout these chapters. But now he's reaching the terminus. There it is before us. There it is in its, in its fullness. There it is highlighted, if you like. The lights are on. It's showing up this, this final terminus. The sign above it is saying, this is the name of this station. Fear God and keep his commandments. Because that's the alternative, the positive, the wonderful alternative to life under the sun. And let's look at the two uh, supporting considerations. Because he says, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment. First of all, he's saying, uh, this is the whole duty of man. Now, um, in the Hebrew text of the Bible, the word duty doesn't actually appear. It's there in translation. But actually what it says literally is, this is the whole of man. And that really tells us something very important, which if you, lose, if you use the word duty, it kind of loses this, this important thrust of meaning of, or the power of the words what is really saying, this is mankind. This is the essence of being human. This is what it means to be human. This is really the heart of the purpose for which human beings exist. This is God's design for us. This is what we were created for. This is the whole man. This is mankind. This is what it means to be human, to fear God and keep his commandments. You see how it all fits together now. This is the one conclusion, but this is the first supporting argument. This is what we were created for. This is the whole man. This is mankind. This is our essence. This is what we exist for. What is the most complete way? What is the best way to be human, to express our humanness? Well, the world will tell you, as you very well know, the world, especially from its secularist point of view or atheistic or humanistic point of view, the world will say the way to express your humanity is just to be yourself. Be who you want to be. Be proud of who you are. Be proud of what your thinking says about yourself. Be proud of living your life without the restrictions that others want to impose upon you, especially restrictions such as religion or the Bible will want to impose upon you. That's the best way to be human. The world out there, the secularism of our day, will say the best way to be human is just to leave God out of the picture altogether. Let's take God out of our schools, out of the teaching of our children. Let's take God out of our higher education. Let's take God out of our political considerations. Let's take God out of how we view society. Let's take God out of our manifestos. Let's take God out of everything in public life. That will be the best expression of man kind of humanity. Ecclesiastes is telling us absolutely wrong. This is the whole man to fear God and keep his commandments, to respect God, to live in awe of God, 
to treat God as he deserves to be treated. That's the whole of man. That's how it is to be human. That's the most complete and best way. The only way, you might say, of being human, expressing humanness in its wholeness, that's what Ecclesiastes has led us to. It is the whole of man. So let's counter the idea that it is actually best, after all, to throw religion aside. I'm not saying it's the same thing to be religious as it is to be a believer or to be in awe or respect of God. We're not talking about formality of religion. We're talking about living in the fear of God, positive, believing, respect for God. And that's what he says, is the whole of man. That's what God's design for us is. And the moment we think of taking him out of public life or private life, we're losing the purpose of life. We're losing sight of the end for which we were created. That's his first supporting argument then. And the second one is, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether it's good or evil. You notice he's saying this twice. Every deed, every secret thing, God will bring it into judgment. And that, of course, connects you with the fear of God and the, re the reference I made to it, that, that that element still there, thinking of God's judgment of sin, that brings a sense of being afraid of God, a respect for God in that way too. Um, but what he's saying is that there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions for uh, the whole of humanity when we come under the judgment of God. He will bring every deed with every secret thing for every person in, under judgment. Second Corinthians 5 verse 10 tells us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And by that all he means all living human beings. And we mustn't think that judgment is itself always condemnation. Sometimes the word judgment is used in the Bible with that sense, but judgment is more to do with the process of examination that God, um, that God uh, carries out, and especially the final judgment at the judgment when Christ comes to judge the world, when we're arranged before, arranged before the, the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, the judgment is the process of examination. The outcome will either be condemnation or approval. And which of these two will be our experience depends on our relation with Jesus. The death that Jesus died on the cross, that is God's condemnation on sin. That's what Jesus actually took to himself. He's already taken that to himself. So when you come to trust in him, when you come to receive him and accept him into your life as your saviour, when you come to be found in Christ, as Paul says, there is, as he says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why he died. To deliver us from God's condemnation that was rightly upon us. For our sins. 
and when we come through the judgment and to the judgment of God. For all of us who are in Christ, there will be no condemnation. There will be judgment. There will be a process of examination. But God will be viewing us in Christ, in his righteousness, having taken condemnation to himself. It no longer applies to us. Make sure today, please make sure that you're in Christ, that you have received him, that you've accepted him, that you have taken this wonderful loving offer of God in the gospel to have this saviour as your saviour, to have all your hopes founded on him, to live in obedience to him, to live in a loving respect and awe of God through Jesus Christ. Because otherwise... You will be condemned, and I will. If our faith is not in Christ, if our hope is not settled in Christ, if we don't have himself, if we don't know him as our saviour and have received him and founded our life upon him, we will be condemned with all the rest. We will be condemned by God. That's not popular. It's not something we'll get the thanks of the world for saying, but it's God's truth. It's God speaking to our hearts. It's God actually telling us, this is how I see it. This is how it will be. This is the conclusion of the whole matter. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing. Nothing will be hidden. All the things that have happened in this world that have not been dealt with thus far, all the injustices, all the big as well as the small injustices, everything that people have done that, as far as this world is concerned, they've escaped justice from. Now that's going to be brought before God, before ourselves, on that day of judgment. And if your heart and my heart doesn't have an element of fear, the prospect of that. We've never really understood what sin is or who God is. Even if we are Christians today, the thought of God's judgment is something that still gives us some element of fear in, his, in, in thinking of what it's about. Even if we know that in Christ we're not going to be condemned, that that judgment is going to approve us in Christ's righteousness and therefore say as Jesus himself said in Matthew 25 come you blessed of my father come and inherit the kingdom whereas on the other hand he says to the others depart from me you wicked and so tonight today that's at all times that's God's that's God's uh, teaching through the gospel of these important things. So we got on the train at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 1. We're now stepping off it at chapter 12 and verse, verse 15. Sometimes it might have it might have appeared that the journey felt as long as the Trans-Siberian Express uh, maybe at times but this is the end of the matter. We've reached the end of the journey. And what are we taking? from the sights that we've seen under the sun, and especially from this final terminus that is reached. 
Well, let me put it in the words of Spurgeon. It wasn't a comment on this uh, particular book or chapter, but uh, Spurgeon commented elsewhere. And this is what he said, and this is what we'll conclude with. I think this really sums up everything we've seen on the journey and what we've come to see now at the end of the journey. Spurgeon said this, Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. And that's what Ecclesiastes has surely taught you and me. Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator. Use the words of chapter 12, verse 1. Nothing teaches us about the preciousness of the Creator, especially the Creator in Christ, as much as when we learn the emptiness of everything else. May God bless these thoughts and these studies of his word. We're going to conclude now singing in Psalm 111. This is from the Scottish Psalter, Psalm 111. Uh, and it's uh, verses 6 to 10. He did the power of his works unto his people show, when he the heathen's heritage upon them did bestow. His handiworks are truth and right, all his commands are sure, and done in truth and uprightness they evermore endure. We'll sing to the tune Paisley, that's uh, Psalm 111 at verse 6. He did the power of his word and to his people show when he the heathen's heritage upon them did bestow his handy our truth and right, all his commands are sure, and done in truth and uprightness, they evermore endure. He Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen. Our thanks to you once again for uh, joining with us in this service. We trust that God will continue to bless his word to you. Uh, do please, if you can, join us this evening again at 6.30. The service will be conducted by Reverend Kenny I. McLeod.
Thank you and keep safe.